Hello, everybody, and welcome to We Measure the World, a podcast produced by scientists for scientists. How do we adapt to urban heat island plus <laughs> climate change? Those on top of each other, and then um, you know we've had some really near record-breaking temperatures, as well as other places like last year, seeing it in the Northwest. What do we do from the climate community side? How do we help out with those programs in terms of cooling? You know, got to think of the social issues of people who don't have access to air conditioning, which there are uh, quite a few actually. When it's like 107 outside, it's 107 inside too. You know, if you're have you know, a respiratory problem, that, that's a big red flag. That's a small taste of what we have in store for you today. We Measure the World explores interesting environmental research trends, how scientists are solving research issues, and what tools are helping them better understand measurements across the entire soil-plant-atmosphere continuum. Today's guest is Dave Dubois, state climatologist for New Mexico, director of the New Mexico Climate Center, an associate professor at New Mexico State University, and he's here to talk about climate observation and research in the state of New Mexico. So Dave, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me. We wanted to talk about several of your projects and research interests, uh, but first, can you tell us just a little bit about your background and how you became involved in climate research and then you know, ultimately becoming a climatologist for the great state of New Mexico? Sure, yeah, I'd be glad to, yeah. So um, I've been a state climatologist since uh, 2010, and I was um, prior to that I was with the Desert Research Institute in Las Vegas, Nevada. Enjoyed working in more air quality, air pollution for about seven years before that. Um, and, you know, I worked in Reno as well, um, so I had a really a lot of interest in air quality and um, dealing with, but mainly on how uh, weather and climate affect air quality, pollution, dust. Uh, ozone are big, big topics, um, especially here in in the West when um, we get a high ozone from um, urban areas as well as wildfire smoke. So I've had a lot of uh, interest in both topics, actually. And then when um, um, this position opened up uh, right around 2010, I was like, great, because my, my family's actually from New Mexico. And I was like, that's a great opportunity to come back and enjoy um, being close to family and in the great state of New Mexico. And um, I really enjoy working here as the state climatologist. And I get to do a lot of different things as uh, a lot of state climatologists do. I think every office is has a very unique role as well as what kind of things that they work on and, and how the state climate offices, either in a university or a state agency or some other agency. And I didn't really know that much about it until I got here, actually, kind of learned by, <laughs> by doing, <laughs> you know, and I have a, a lot of great colleagues from our, my neighboring states, as well as actually the whole country. We meet usually once a year. And so I learned um, over time. And this is my, I'm uh, just finishing my 11th year. Yeah. And as you mentioned, uh, being state climatologist, I'm sure you have uh, several hats that you need to wear. Uh, in different uh, situations and settings, and a lot of varied projects that you help oversee or consult on or otherwise. One of those projects that we'd love to start off and get into, if you can, give us some, a little background into the Ziamet Agricultural Weather Station Network. Yeah, yeah. As many states have, they have uh, weather station networks, and, um, and some are more developed than others, and some have been out there for 30 years or more, and some are pretty new and and so I, I came on board in New Mexico, and we had a few stations 
Um, I, at that point, I wouldn't call it a masonet yet, but it was basically a network of weather stations um, at our ag science centers. Those are NMSU um, off-campus locations, mainly dealing with uh, local agricultural issues. And so we had weather stations there to, to kind of support their research. And I've looked at other states, and they have that kind of network, as well as filling the gaps between like National Weather Service co-op sites, airports, Snowtel, any other federal networks out there, um, as well as other private networks. And, and it's been my goal ever since I started, really, to get funding as well as building a network, not only the physical weather station hardware, but also the network of people to help with that. It's not just putting a bunch of hardware out in the field. It's working with counties, soil conservation districts, extension, you know, building that network to help with that. And just recently, you know, we've been working with the state legislature mm-hmm. to get that off the ground. We really haven't had very much opposition and it's mainly Good. been the lack of funds has been right. the uh, opposition, but um, that that is that has actually changed recently. Mm-hmm. We've uh, talked with with other people in other states who are setting up their own, you know, mesonets and others, and and especially at, at with a project the scale, especially with with New Mexico being as large as it as it is and covering such varied uh, geography and climate. Sometimes it, there might be the sense that getting buy in or getting funding might be a, a pretty difficult process. Are you saying that it hasn't been as difficult as you were assuming? I'm sure that there haven't have been the ups and downs in that whole process, right? Yeah, actually, um, if you were to ask that same question probably two years ago, I would say it's almost impossible. Not what impossible, but <laughs> mm-hmm. it's really hard. It's relatively easy to get uh, soft money, a research project, um, and built-in weather station, and then say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna work in this region, and we're gonna put a new station in, you know, put new sensors in. And, and as research projects go, as we all know, they have a start and stop date. And sometimes they're a year, sometimes they're as long as five years. And so there's that, there's that sustainability issue when you're dealing with soft money, um, when you're dealing with something that is, 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 is inherently long-term in nature, like weather stations. You know, we, you know as climatologists, we, we treasure long um, periods of record. You know, if we can get d- data sets that, that go decades um, those are really important. So it's that, how do we support that station with visiting and with doing maintenance, QA, sensor replacements, and have somebody look at the data on a regular basis, visiting the site just to, just to make sure everything's okay. There's not vines growing over and frogs making their house inside rain gauges, things mm-hmm. like that, that, that go on all the time. If you don't look at the station, nobody takes care of it. So it's that over time, um, like I said, it's, been fairly easy to get funding for short short term, but it's that longevity. So how do we get long-term sustaining funds to keep things going? You know, in the past, we've used um, locals with our university to help out. Can you go by the station every month, uh, check the rain gauge, make sure that the weeds aren't covering things and uh, replace the battery on a regular basis, things like that. Um, but, but a lot of times there's no funding associated with it. It's more of their volunteer helping mm-hmm. out. That's still valuable as to having that, but also we we need that funding long term to keep things going. You know, when things fail, you know, either a flood or a, a wildfire, lightning. I mean, a lot of things that go wrong. And just just a lifetime of the sensors. We got to put that into our in some kind of budget, and that that's what's been really hard. We got our funding going through stakeholders, meaning folks mm-hmm. who use the data. They were really interesting having more data because you know co-op network is sparse especially in the West. 
we don't replace the co-op observers. And those are the, the long-term observers out there. Sometimes they have been several generations. Sometimes we lose those and then there's no local data that they can use. Knowing that we existed here, now is the key is to let people know that the state climate office does exist. We have a mm-hmm. state climatologist and there's somebody mm-hmm. actually willing and able <laughs> to go to bat and to do this. Um, that's that's key. That's another, another is, is make sure you're known throughout the communities. Otherwise, people don't even know who to contact and getting that buyout and say, hey, you know, we, we are here. We can do this. We just need help and making it a high priority in states in, in like state agencies or even eventually into a legislative uh, mm-hmm. bill. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how we got started. And it's been several years in process. It wasn't just like, boom, there. It, it took a lot of work in getting people and, and the National Weather Service forecast offices have been really key in that. And so if you haven't, if you're interested in doing this is, is getting them on board and getting to know them and partnering with them and getting support. And in New Mexico, we've been working with the drought community to, to get, okay, where, do we, where are gaps in knowledge of drought where we have? And so, I mean, we've used Kokoraz to help with that, but we really need that, that automated or another co-op stations, or we can get um, um, a, a Masonet station. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's mm-hmm. going to be a, a big a big deal. Would you say that you've you've had any other champions of the project within both private and public uh, sector, or even within you know government agencies or legislature? Weather Service has been our key champion. We have three forecast offices that serve New Mexico. We got Midland, Albuquerque, and Santa Teresa, which is uh, near El Paso, and all all three have been, um, you know, say yeah, we we need we need more data, and also working with uh, water agencies has been key, like our state engineer's office, because they a lot as in a lot of the states and in this area, drought monitoring and especially supporting the U.S. drought monitor comes from the water agencies, um, like mm-hmm. ours does, uh, Arizona as well. So having them on board and getting support letters and letting people know that there's a there's a need and speaking up and, and talking about it. And, and even though it may not result in funding on that side, it's just building that collaboration. We're here. We're, this is what we're doing. Who uses the data? Can you use the data? That That's really key. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get too deep into uh, discussing the project it, itself, I was interested in the name Zianet and where that came from. Can you talk about that a little bit? When I first started here, we I had some students, and I said, "Hey, well, let's have a contest. Let's you know put some names in a in a hat, and let's talk about it." And um, and then we actually had several of us. We we agreed on that on Zianet because Zia is. Uh, is sort of the symbol of New Mexico, and it's actually a pueblo, mm-hmm. a tribal nation in mm-hmm. New Mexico. But it's but it's been adopted as sort of the symbol for New Mexico. It's part of our New Mexico flag, okay, the Zia right. symbol, and it was sort of represents. Um, since we're a statewide network, um, we we want to make make it look like New Mexico, and we and we came up. We also came up with a a logo. We continue to use that logo in in our, our outreach. That's great. No, I, I knew about the, the, you know, the Zia people and Zia Pueblo, but I didn't know about the, the symbol aspect of it. So that's really cool. What, with the project of this ZMET network, what were the New Mexico specific problems that inspired the project or New Mexico specific goals that you're seeking to, you know, accomplish? 
Yeah. So, so some of our big users are the agricultural community and it's, and it's not only the cropland, which they, they use our data, a, a lot of it for planting as well as compute evapotranspiration. So we've got a couple methods to calculate ET and um, we've been developing some products for like irrigation scheduling based off of uh, PEM and Montese um, mm-hmm. calculations. And that's mm-hmm. one, that's one avenue where it's used as well as um, some of the other water users like the Bureau of Reclamation, is another user. The other part of that is drought. That then mm-hmm. that's probably the big kicker to get mm-hmm. us funding was mm-hmm. we don't have enough information about mainly precipitation. Precip is sparse and very localized, especially when I mean, we get you know a third to a forty percent of our annual rainfall um, precipitation from summer monsoons. It's like spotty here and there, and as well as many other uh, western states, uh, our radar is doesn't cover everywhere really well. And there's some real mountain blocks that the radar doesn't really see. It sees it, but it's like at 10,000 or more feet above the ground. And um, and a lot of times underestimate what's actually there. So the the drought community has really been our our big um, user right now. And is really, I've always used the word drought when I'm putting in an abstract or a legislative bill language and, you know, emergency management comes in as well, you know, uh, disasters, uh, which can come in all seasons uh, in New Mexico, as well as other places, you know, with um, ice storms, snow, and a lot of other places in the Southwest, we get dust storms and, and, mm-hmm. and dust mm-hmm. storms, we have to have that high wind component as well as the drought combination and disturbed soils. And that sort of the getting getting more in situ measurements of that is is has been key, and, and the National Weather Service has been really um, keen on that. Much of the Western North America is in the middle of a mega drought. How has New Mexico been affected by drought? You know, how is it currently affected by drought? Our agricultural users in the past have dipped into surface water from the Rio Grande, Pecos River, Cimarron. New Mexico is high elevation to the north, and it goes slopes down lower elevation to the south and southeast. And so there's water flowing from north to south. We get a lot of water from Colorado. We dip a little bit into the Colorado River system, the basin. And so we, with an extended drought, like pretty much been in this one since around, around 1999 or so, and um, we really see that if you ever visit New Mexico, you know, visit some of the reservoirs, especially some of the bigger ones like Elephant Butte, where we're, we're, we're down to like 7% of capacity, you know, and we've only go up to like 30 or 40%. That's kind of the sign for, you know, that becoming more arid in, in, in an area. Mm-hmm. That water is a big deal as well as the drying of soils, higher temperatures, even though you get more precip, it, it evaporates fast. And as well as having spring dry season, you know, having more dust storms, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's a, that's a big deal here. And it's it impacts a lot of folks and it's, we've been doing a lot of work in that area using in-situ as well as um, remote sensing. Mm-hmm. So you talked about your in-situ uh, measurements. What are the kinds of setups that you have at these various weather stations? Yeah, so we've got several several types. We we have a project right now with the New Mexico Department of Transportation, and they're they've been concerned with um, accidents, um, and they've actually unfortunately been some fatalities on the interstates. This is I ten because of dust. It's basically just you can't see the visibility goes practically down to zero. You barely see one car length for a minute or two, and that's when we see the accidents. And then so 
they've been really working um, over the last, you know, five, six, seven years on how to mitigate that hazard. They've called up our office to add more meteorological measurements. So, you know, looking at winds and they, they've also added in their own roadway information system that gets real-time data. We've also put in particulate measurements, um, aerosol concentrations, as well as particle counters, you know, that collect data on a minute averages. We have several of those stations on one of the problem areas in Western New Mexico to basically document and to know how severe, and we also use cameras. So we use time-lapse cameras to provide that um, semi-quantitative information. And we, we, we collect an image every 10 seconds. So we, we get a sense of like movies of, of dust storms. And we've, we've got about six years of 10-minute data to get a sense of the dynamics, how dust storms behave, how far you can see. We use like, you know, the, the, the fences, the, the barbed wire fences, how, how many posts can you see? And then <laughs> mm-hmm. if it's really bad, you, can, you can't even see the next post. And it's mm-hmm. actually it's gotten that bad in some places. Wow. And, um, and then it kind of pegs out our, um, our optical dust measurements and, at times. And we've been starting to use um, soil moisture measurements. You know, every soil is different underneath the stations, but it's sort of that, you know, if it does rain a tenth, tenth of an inch or even a hundredth of an inch, how long does it take for that to dry out, the evaporation, mm-hmm. the soil evaporation process to, to see dust again? And, mm-hmm. and we found that evaporation is, is really rapid and it, it takes just a day rain and then it's ready for dust emission the next day in some mm-hmm. some cases mm-hmm. <laughs> so it does so it does it's not really uh you know wetting wetting the ground doesn't really help a lot in some mm-hmm. cases because of that that heating that diurnal mm-hmm. heating intense heating so it's that learning process you know for us as a aerosol weather person climate person it's that you know so when we talk to the soil people about that and say oh yeah yeah that makes sense but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but actually having data to, to support that. So with this network, are you trying to get into weather and climate prediction and forecasting as opposed to just seeing what is happening at one time at one spot? That has been on my mind over time is once you get enough data and it's sort of like question is how much is enough, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's that is getting uh, um, enough dust storm events to create some statistics. And also we've been asking around about using machine learning methods, training these systems to identify when they occur. And then knowing when we use like cameras, we know for sure the dust occurs. Then what did the data look like before that? You know, what was the preceding 10 minutes, hour, several hours before that? Can we see any pattern emerging. And that's kind of the direction we're heading. We, we just started dabbling into that with uh, classifying some of the imagery using some um, machine learning methods. That That's a whole nother, that's mm-hmm. out of my skill area, you know, with the computer science aspect of that. I think the future is using those kind of methods to help out. I know there's there's ways to, to look at deterministic methods, you know, sort of looking at like a uh, HRRR forecast model combined with uh, uh, radar and other in situ mesonets that, you know, that, that, that has a definite role, but I think this complementary is using the data approach coming in from the data. What is the data seeing as opposed to looking at the mesoscale models, you know, like mm-hmm. the wharf model. And I think there's, there's roles for both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I had a question about dealing with variability. So for our audience who have never been to New Mexico, it is not all desert, <laughs> like you might have seen on TV or in film. It does have a great deal of topographic, geographic, and climatological variability. You have It's moving from the Great Plains into the Rocky Mountains, Colorado Plateau. There are deserts, hot and cold deserts, but does this present more of a challenge to you, or is it something where you're saying, yes, let's go, let's figure out what's going on in New Mexico with the great variability that we do see there. Just of note, there, there are no saguaros in New Mexico. You know, that's a lot of times I see pictures of the desert with the wily coyote with the saguaros, you know, right. big, big yeah. cactus. There are no saguaros in New Mexico. I mean, the people have put them in their front yards mm-hmm. from Arizona. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. anyway, I thought I would mention that because <laughs> we have our own type of cactus in right. New Mexico. But yeah, you're right. You know, we've got eight climate divisions in New Mexico all the way from alpine to the lower elevations, the desert Chihuahuan desert to the basically looks like southern Great Plains of Texas. We dip into a little bit of the severe weather into eastern New Mexico, not as much as the Great Plains, but we've had tornadoes come close to our weather stations. Um, and I've looked on the radars like, oh, there's there's a tornado about a mile away from our station. Wow. <laughs> so we don't get very many of those in New Mexico. We have different types of weather hazards. Um, but, you know, like right now, we're looking into snow. Uh, our highest weather station is at 10,000 feet of sea levels. You know, we get quite a bit of variability. We dip into the, the Mexican monsoon in the summer, northeast part of the state. Very much looks like the Texas panhandle at sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> when we get these backdoor cold fronts dipping in and goes below zero Fahrenheit. We just had a meeting last week to look at dust on snow. Mm-hmm. That basically um, accelerates the melt meltout of snowpack in, in the spring in the San Juan Mountains of Colorado. And so the dust sources are in Arizona and New Mexico pr- primarily. And so, you know, when we see a dry signature drought years, when coupled with a lot of storm tracks heading over that area over the four corners, we get those events. That's another challenge we get, you know, it's a neighboring state that we're impacting it, which is in, actually impacts us because it changes the hydrology of our water, surface water that flows down to the southern part of the state. So yeah. <laughs> it's a feedback mechanism that we're seeing in especially concerning with a changing climate. If we see more uh, drying out of our soils and coupled with land use practices that encourage more disturbance. I was going to ask you, where are you seeing that New Mexico is vulnerable? Right now we're dealing with a, a double dip La Nina and it sort mm-hmm. of, it gives us a taste of what some of our climate models are showing as a potential futures. And so it's sort of that, okay, we're seeing this really dry signal warming, um, early meltout, less snow, more rain type of scenarios in our our mountain stream, you know, our headwaters to some of our rivers. And when I give talks, I talk about that, you know, we're seeing this signal now. This current one right now is from La Nina, plus on top of that, a warming signal from changing climate. We just finished a report, we as a, um, a bunch of folks and academics for the Interstate Stream Commission of New Mexico to look at a 50-year water plan. We kind of put our heads together and say, yeah, this is what the climate is going to be looking like when we get these La Ninas. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's not exactly, but it's, it's that kind of signal we're seeing. And, and it basically brings out the vulnerabilities of our systems and, you know, with, especially with agriculture. You know, we've, we've, a lot of our agricultural policies and practices came about when we had a much wetter 
climate in the 80s, 90s, when we actually filled the Elephant Butte Reservoir to mm-hmm. its 2 million acre feet. And now we're just barely at less than 10% of that. Seeing that, you know, those vulnerabilities pop up, pecans in the south and chilies mm-hmm. and other crops, you know, and have to rely on uh, groundwater, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and so that there's a lot of challenges with that, as well as a lawsuit that New Mexico is in right now. There's the legal policy environmental and, and social issues all come together. And that's kind of climate change wrapped up. It's all those together. It's not just mm-hmm. science. It's how we react and what do we do. And it's building those adaptation plans, you know, so how do we adapt to this? Do we need to change crops? You know, those big questions, you know, it's livelihoods and the way we've been doing things in cultures, you know, work with some tribal groups and it's sort of that you know, how do we view this in terms of the tribal view, you know, indigenous knowledge and digging into what we've learned in the past. We need to look at that again and seeing how do we do this as a 21st century society, you know, with things that were different than 100 years ago or 200 Mm -hmm. years ago. But we sort of have knowledge of what things could look like in the climate community says, yeah, this is very likely this is what's Mm going to happen. So we Mm -hmm. better... um, figure out the vulnerabilities of how this works, you know, whether it be drying soils, being able to struggle more raising cattle in certain areas. Is that feasible in certain areas? Are we going to have to deal more with hazards on dust storms um, in these areas? Is the health community going to really be alerted when these events occur, you know, not only for dust, but wildfire smoke, it's a big deal uh, all over the West, as you know, um, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, it's not going away. It sounds like it's going to be increasing. So those are our vulnerabilities. It's, it's, a, it's multi-threaded and probably one of our biggest challenges is that, you know, we can put together climate scenarios and downscale and have fun with all those, but it ends up, what are we going to do with that information? So you mentioned this double dip in La Nina and other climactic effects on weather patterns. Are you seeing that within the monsoons with the effects on their seasonality or their intensity of those weather events? Well, we really haven't seen a noticeable signal in the monsoon yet. However, because of the warming temperatures, I think it's, it needs to be looked at a little more in terms of things like flash drought, things like quickly mm-hmm. evolving mm-hmm. drought mm-hmm. because of high temperatures. Those are on our watch list. We need to really look at it over time and to see how much change there are. But you know, we haven't really seen that yet in terms of loss of precipitation, but it's that the warming temperature, the hot, the trends above average. You know, like we've been seeing this in urban areas. You know, mm-hmm. we work a lot with in the urban heat and how it affects people. And that's a big area, I think, that we're working with our RISA program with University of Arizona in New Mexico here, CLEMAS. Um, so how do we adapt to urban heat island plus mm-hmm. climate change? Mm-hmm. Those on top of each other. And then, um, you know, we've had some really near record-breaking temperatures as well as other places like last year, seeing it in the Northwest. What do we do from the climate community side? How do we help out with those programs in terms of cooling? You know, got to think of the social issues of people who don't have access to air conditioning, which there are uh, quite a few, actually. When it's like 107 outside, it's 107 inside, too. You know, if you have, you know, a respiratory problem, that, that's a big red flag, especially if it's a, a multi-day event. You know, you know, and they're living in an area where there's no relief, it's all pavement, concrete, 
very little trees. Mm-hmm. So there, you don't get, you don't even get shade, you know, other than your house, you know, mm-hmm. and then those are the kind of issues that, that are really popping up now and looking at on their future. And we need to address those now. And we have to use sensors inside people's houses and as well as outside urban heat island. Mm-hmm. How bad is it? As well as the other things that go on to exasperate like ozone, you know, on yeah. top of high temperatures. How do you get around working with urban heat islands in arid environments? I mean, you can't really just xeriscape your way out of it, you know, and and if you're you're concerned if you're trying to plant trees, well then that brings in the whole idea of water use and water scarcity. What are your thoughts on that? We modified the microclimates by adding, you know, all these surfaces that that radiate heat, store heat differently than the natural environment and and so a lot of the city sustainability directors and um, other cities have brought in the ideas of more trees. But yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it has to have the right kind of trees who are adapted to more arid environments mm-hmm. as opposed to ones you can bring in from Mississippi, which look great, but you have to have a lot of water mm-hmm. to keep those going. And so, and the bottom line is you have to have the community buy-in on this as well. You know, the, the city can do things and we got to have the buy-in from the the community members and to help out and to support these things because it, it's public money. I live in Las Cruces and we have issues with Urban Heat Island here and it's everybody's their backyard or front yard, you know, that it adds up, you know, one lawn or is not a big deal, but if you have 20, 30,000 lawns and mm-hmm. backyards, it makes a difference. What tools do we have if we enacted this for new building having shade or zero escape, how much does this make a difference in the overall microclimate of your city? How can we utilize sensors and remote sensing to say, is there any changes? What's our bounds? How much change in temperature can we do for amount of effort? It translates into dollars, whether it's the city doing it or builders. So those are some really big questions. And, and a lot of times we don't even know some of the answers right now. We don't really know how much things change you know, I've read some articles and are even local here. We've, we've looked at changing the albedo of some of the surfaces. You know, it's, it costs more, but is that really worth it? Does the albedo really change the environment, the, the radiated balance in that neighborhood? Or mm-hmm. does it just impact a meter or two from the road? Mm-hmm. You know, does it really <laughs> go into the houses, you know, that, that larger scale? You know, And how much will it need, take if we wanted to use that kind of technology? Or is it that's just one piece. We need to Im- involve a lot more than that. I have a feeling it's going to be a lot of things we have to do and not just one thing. There's no silver mm-hmm. bullet for right. these things. And we have right. to track them. So we need, we've been talking with a lot of folks and um, there's a need for more, you know, we've been putting Mason at stations out of the urban heat island, but I think there is a, there's a role for actually having s- networks that, that measure the urban heat islands mm-hmm. that are urban in nature and, special purpose for monitoring the heat that we, if you're sitting at a bus stop or walking in a, near a park, I think there's a need for having those data sets to know what is, what's our baseline now. They're going to be heavily influenced by the urbanized areas, but it's, it's data. New Mexico is home to a relatively large indigenous Native American population. How have your efforts gone in including tribal leaders or tribal governments into the climate discussion as a whole in New Mexico? So we've got numerous 
tribes in New Mexico, and we have one in um, El Paso. We've partnered with several tribal agencies, their um, Department of Natural Resource and even the Agriculture. When I first started here, we've engaged the tribal, the Navajo Nation, as well as some of the Apache, Mescalero, as well as Jicaria. And, you know, we've helped them and volunteered our time, you know, science fairs and just kind of getting ourselves known and, you know, just letting people know, you know, we have an ally with the state climate office. We partner a lot with like the Southwest Climate Hub, that's the USDA Southwest Climate Hubs. And they've also been great partners and um, getting um, the word out. We've got a drought learning network um, program with tribal governments and then working also with South Central Climate Science Adaptation Center in Oklahoma, you know, partnering with them as well. And um, there's a lot of activity going on in tribal work and climate and air quality. You know, they have the same issues. They have their own governments, sovereign nations, but they have needs as well that we could, yeah. we could help out. It's a two-way road because if they have data, we could it's a data point where I know what, what, how much precipitation or the temperatures are in that area. If they can share the data, you know, we use that in some of our drought monitoring work group for the state of New Mexico and getting that information from tribes has been really helpful. That kind of flows into the next section talking about Cocoraz and this idea of citizen science network that, that's going on. Can you discuss a little bit about Cocoraz and what it is and its main drivers and goals? So if you're not familiar with COCORAS, it stands for Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network. And it's um, that started up in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, a number of years ago. And we started doing COCORAS right around 2005. It's a citizen science. Anybody can participate. And it's, it's precipitation. It's all, we, that's all we do is measuring rain, hail, and snow. And it's a daily measurement. It's pretty much the same time the co-op observers take their data and it's a um, you know forty dollar rain gauge. That's the investment, other than your time to go out there and measure rain, hail, and snow. Uh, over time, we've started off small. You know, we've really hit the recruitment wagon and did a lot of outreach. You know, I I took it over as a state coordinator um, from Leanne Demuche, who's who's really got it going from two thousand five. We just kept on going and not looking back. We've got. The National Weather Service forecast offices as also regional coordinators. And then we've been um, trying to get uh, county coordinators. we got 33 counties in New Mexico. And so it, it's grown. We're on the order of 500 observers, and we've got about 1,000 registered, you know, more than actually. And then on a, when we get monsoon pops up, we can get up to 600 people across yeah. New Mexico to enter their data. And, and, and it's not only when it rains, but also when it doesn't rain. So that's one of the big yeah. things that Cocoraz mm-hmm. um, is as a as a byproduct is, is is drought. We tell people we we have we call them zero heroes because <laughs> they report when there's no rain. Mm-hmm. And in the in the Southwest, that's really important because we we need to know how long it, what's the time between the last last rainfall. Mm-hmm. You know, we can get like 90 days some years, 90 days between the last rain. Mm-hmm. You know, we can tell. And, and for the National Weather Service, they're eye and ears for what goes on. And a lot of them are, are Skywarn trained. So it, it, they get them really involved in weather. You know, we've gotten a lot of a lot of retirees and key partners in, in Cocoraz. And, and recently with, you know, New Mexico, we've got a lot of 
uh, range, open range. So a lot of our ranchers are key Cocoraz observers, and I really appreciate them because they have, they're in some of the more sparse areas. We've got a lot of people in urban areas, which is great. It's one of the densest networks I've I've seen long-term, but we really treasure those who are out, out in the, you know, their nearest neighbor is, is 20 miles. Mm-hmm. How would interested individuals uh, get involved with Cocoraz? Yeah, so joining Cocoraz is free. We have a great website, cocoraz.org. It's c o c o r a h s dot o r g, and there's a link on the upper right that says join. And I'll just fill out uh, just a few things, uh, you know, your email, your name, your location, and then get a gauge. That's pretty much all you need to do. Is then there's a there's some videos and there's a PowerPoint that kind of gives you the what, how, and things like that. But it's really simple. We've been getting county extension agents to do this. We've got soil water conservation districts helping out with this. So it's not only citizens, but it's also some government agencies. Mm-hmm. We even had a, a newspaper participate in um, Kokoraz. So mm-hmm. getting their own data in their parking lot. So oh, um, cool. there's, there's no excuse. Yeah, that's right. I was interested, coming back to, to uh, dust pollution, you had mentioned some of the mitigative measures that might be employed to help with dust pollution. I was wondering if you could go into a bit more detail about preventative and mitigative measures when it comes to, to dust. Yeah. So the recipe for these dust storms, of course, you've got the environmental lack of precipitation, high winds. But then there's also the the soil component, you know, dry soils as well as disturbance level. You know, as I go out and survey some of our our weather stations to do maintenance or some of our dust control area projects, it's amazing. Depending on the type of management, the land cover management makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. I won't mention any names or anything, but like sort of the this areas I can see on one side of the fence has been overgrazed. And then on the other side of the fence is they've they've limited um, animal uh, interaction and letting the the grass grow up. When the wind blows, you can see the dust coming off that overgrazed area, mm-hmm. large quantities, and very little or none coming off of the protected cover where there's some vegetation on it. I'm mm-hmm. not saying anything about the negatives of animals or anything, but it's sort of how do we manage that to minimize dust in certain areas. I've done some tours in some um, ranches where they've um, addressed that, knowing that there's wind erosion, which is a loss of the organic layers on the top. They really wanted to keep the soil down. So they've changed their management of how the grass grows and, and moving them around, moving animals around, letting the grass grow up and then mm-hmm. going, you know, moving them. So there, there's like a lot of different ways of doing that. It all depends on, you know, who's doing it. It's a difficult problem to manage. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've seen small areas that actually gone into desertification. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've toured China and other places where it's actually that, it looks very similar to it. It's like mm-hmm. dunes, you know, shovel down almost a meter and it's just sand. Wow. <laughs> and that's not the way it used to be. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, eventually you reach down to the soil. In some of the areas where the sand is built up, as high as the barbed wire fences. It's going to take a lot of work to bring that down, to bring yeah. soil quality, to to hold vegetation again. Um, and I've toured those places and it's, I've actually seen those come up very quickly in some areas. And you know, mm-hmm. on the, especially in the great Southern Great Plains, we have a, a listserv for drought and occasionally we'll get pictures of 
um, you know, the panhandle of Oklahoma and, and, and or southern um, uh, Kansas, where there was no cover, ground cover on some pivot irrigation areas, and, and that has popped up in that little little patch. Huh. You know, so we're seeing that you know the dust bowl and this right. one acre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it can come up come up pretty quickly. Wow. There's all kinds of solutions, but it's a matter of you know doing them. And mm-hmm. we we talked about it in the health communities and bringing people in. You know, we've got um, a lot of tools and resources out there, but it, it's ultimately the the land managers, whoever's managing, is the is the key. Right. Right. Um. You mentioned in passing a, a, a while ago, um, haboobs. For those that aren't familiar with the term, can you describe what they are really quickly? Yeah. So haboob is just an Arabic word, um, <laughs> nothing fancy. Um, and it's basically, you've, you've probably seen pictures of them. It's a wall of dust. Mm-hmm. If you haven't ever seen that, go watch the some movies. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. The stereotypical dust storm, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, this wall of dust coming through and, um, you know, um, Phoenix is, is probably famous from one of the more famous places in the U S for, for these walls of dust. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're basically from convective thunderstorms out there. The outflow from the thunderstorms creates this high wind, the gust front basically blows over a, a erodible area and it's a clearly defined wall of dust, and it could be thousand feet high. And you can see them on radar. That you can see the outflow uh, boundary, and it's and if you're there, you you can see it. There's a wall, and it kind of emanates out radially from the thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. And so we we get these every summer. Phoenixes are famous for them, but we've seen them in southern New Mexico. We on our time lapse network. They, they occur pretty often, actually, in the rangelands when there's lots of disturbed areas. You kind of classify them as like a dry microburst. And then sometimes um, there's a wet microburst or even rain right after these. So mm-hmm. it's that you can classify them very narrowly within a, a kilometer, but they can also be large. Mm-hmm. And like the, there's a they get on the, like on the southern Great Plains, you can get these haboobs that are more from um, uh, frontal um, their outflow or their more frontal systems. And those right. are big, they're like county wide or even several counties, you know, the kind of traditional, the black and white pictures of the mm-hmm. dust balls, mm-hmm. you know, those are different mm-hmm. types, different classification than the, the Phoenix kinds. Okay. Final subject. And this is one that we, we talk about quite often, or at least we try to on this podcast, and that's dealing with public education and outreach. What are some of the methods that you've seen as being successful or maybe not as successful? Um, I know that you're relatively active on social media with the climate office and, and other things. Sometimes it seems that it becomes, you know, just an echo chamber and everybody's retweeting each other as opposed to really spreading the word outside of, of our own community. So I'm just wondering your thoughts on, on that. Where do people get their information? That That's kind of where we started from and ranging in topics from climate change to just weather, you know, forecasts to outlooks, you know, for agricultural communities to kids, you mm-hmm. know, that whole spectrum, the whole ages, age groups. And, um, you know, we, we didn't do any fancy polls or anything like that, but we, I, I, I usually just like kind of a- ask people, 
when I'm out and about. And that's kind of one of the things is just getting out, out of mm-hmm. the office, you mm-hmm. know, and it's been hard the past year and a half or so with COVID, but most of us have mastered Zoom, mm-hmm. whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. It, it is a tool that, you know, I can, you know, instantly talk to somebody across the state where it's a seven hour drive. They may not like to be on Zoom, but it's a way to to, to talk to people. And it's that contact getting into face-to-face meetings now, but whether you're online or in person, it's, you know, getting to know people and they're, what are they struggling with? What are they happy about? So what are the issues? And just talking about climate and weather and agriculture, you know, we, they talked about the, the freezes and mm-hmm. when the last frost or the, when the first freeze is going to be and, uh, um, you know, the extremes or another big thing. So there's, there's a lot of things that kind of icebreakers mm-hmm. to get conversations started. You know, I don't almost never talk directly about climate change first, you mm-hmm. know, I always like to kind of get a even ground and in, in terms of, you know, what have you seen, you know, what has it been mm-hmm. like, um, how has this year been? And if there are producers, what kind of things have they've seen compared to other years? And, and we may not even get to climate change on, you know, in some of the conversations and, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's good. I think that's, I mean, we may get it if we're to that point where I've maybe talked to them uh, a little longer to get a sense of where, where they are. I'll, I'll, likely bring up climate change and I, I don't want to alienate people and because it has turned into a politicized topic. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'd rather talk more about what big on their radar, what's impacting them, what are they concerned about? And then I like to eventually talk about ways they can help. And a lot of people said, yeah, how can I help? You know, what, mm-hmm. what can I do? And then I'll, I'll direct them toward resources or if they're gung-ho, I would say, yeah, Kokoraz, you know, there's there's a way to to, to take your own measurements and report and be part of the community of observers as part of the mm-hmm. volunteer network. And mm-hmm. drought has been a, has been a really good icebreaker these days. You know, mm-hmm. I, I talk a lot, people in Northern New Mexico have very different um, experiences than Southern New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Although there's some things in common, you know, social media has played a, a big role in that. You know, we've got several Twitter accounts. I have NM Climate, and then I have a student doing um, Kokoraz, NM mm-hmm. underscore Kokoraz. Um, and we and we try to. Uh, my students have been really good about it, much probably even much better than I have, in in pushing what in um, Kokoraz observations through their um, followers. And um, we've also started Instagram, just kind of pushing a bunch of pictures when I go out doing station maintenance for Ziamet. Mm-hmm. I'll post a picture just to let them know that there's a station in this part of the, this county. You know, we're out there main, maintaining these things, changing the rain gauge oil. And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, we're out there. We'll post pictures of dust storms and haboobs and mm-hmm. um, outflow and things like that, just to, as a way to, to engage people, talk more about it. And it's really helped out. Sometimes we'll follow a lot of the media outlets and they'll, they'll tag and then get a radio interview or TV or just a newspaper article, even if it's only a paragraph. And that's great. Right. Getting right. the word out, talking about Kokoraz, I'll bring that up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then maybe even Ziamet, you know, as they know, mm-hmm. here's another way to, to get data. You know, we try to connect people with the weather.gov community to, to say, here's your, here's a great source of weather information for forecasts. Okay. Our time is up for today. Thank you again, Dave, for joining us. And we really appreciate you taking time to talk to us. Um, And it definitely has been a really um, interesting conversation on climate change and weather observation and environmental research there in the state of New Mexico. 
And if you in the audience have any questions about this topic or want to hear more, feel free to contact us at metergroup.com or reach out to us on Twitter at meter underscore ENV. And you can also view the full transcript from today in the podcast description. That's all for now. Stay safe, and we'll catch you next time on We Measure the World.